welcome back. We are going to be back in the book of Esther, uh, looking at our lessons in obedience. We've gone through uh, the book of Jonah and saw Jonah's disobedience to God and hopefully learned a few things. We've gone through the book of Ruth and saw Ruth's obedience to God and hopefully learned a few things. And here we are going, we've been looking at uh, Esther and all of the things that are happening in the absence of God. Uh, But hopefully we are seeing God's hand through all of it. Last week, Esther was crowned queen. Uh, She has now risen to the highest possible place a woman could in this kingdom. But at what cost? Uh, Because we don't know a lot about her life, we cannot tell uh, what she has set aside in order to obtain this position. Uh, Again, we don't know if she sought it or if the position sought her. We do know uh, that God was not given any consideration since he's not mentioned in this book. Uh, But this gives us a stark contrast to the life of Joseph where uh, we see over and over again that God was with Joseph everywhere he went, uh, from the pit to Potiphar's house to the prison to the palace. uh, Over and over, God was with Joseph. The Bible tells us that. We also know that Joseph never sought out the places that he was sent. Uh, God's provision and blessing are very evident in the life of Joseph because Uh, God saw fit to show us these things. Here, we're still wondering if this is God or Satan bringing this good fortune to Esther. And I say good fortune uh, because it really is going to turn out to be a very stressful and and possibly bad time for them. But we don't know who's here. But we can already begin to see how God is working. Uh, remember that wherever God has you is the highest honor that you could ever have. Uh, if I were to put of, if I were to out of my own desire leave my pastorate and become the president of the United States, uh, it would be a step down because this is where God has me. Uh, he's not called me to be the president. Um, he's called me here uh, to pastor and to serve Him. And. Uh, This is something we have to keep in mind as we're going through and seeing how God is working through all of this. And we know the end of the book. We know that that the Jews are threatened and that uh, through Esther and Mordecai, uh, the Jews are saved. And and we understand that God's hand was in all of that. Uh, But we also need to understand that God was never sought in all of that. So as we pick up in Esther chapter 2, we're going to pick up in verse number 29. And the Bible says, sorry, in verse number 9, not 29, verse number 9, and the Bible says, And the maiden, I'm sorry, verse number 19, I, I typed, mistyped a, wrong, a number. Sorry, verse number 19. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Tirish, of those which kept the door, were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ahasuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen. And Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore, they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. Let's pray. Father God, again, we love you. We thank you for preserving your word for us, for giving us this example 
that we can know and understand how we should live. Lord, that we can learn and learn to serve you and serve you properly. So Lord, please help us to be obedient today. Help us to know and understand your truth. Show us what you would have for us from this passage. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing that pops out in verse number 19 is that there was a second gathering. Uh, And this might seem like something trivial, but it points out the fact that man's lust is never satisfied. Verse number 19 says, And when the virgins were gathered together the second time. Now, I'm pretty sure that all of the virgins that were gathered together the first time are no longer virgins, so they could not be put into this category. But they were gathered together the second time. Proverbs 27.20. got to think for a second. Which way to go? <laughs> Proverbs 27 and verse number 20. It says, Hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of man are never satisfied. Proverbs 30 And verse number 15 says, The horse leech hath two daughters, crying, Give, give. There are three things that are never satisfied, yea, four things. Say not, it is enough. The grave, the barren womb, the earth that is not filled with water, and the fire that saith not, it is enough. These things are never satisfied. Man's lust is often compared to a burning fire. His eyes are the gateway to, the, to his lust, to his desires. But it's not just man's lust. It's man's lust for the things of the world. I found myself, uh, we talked about it this morning in Sunday school, in a bit of a relapse over the last few months. Again, I have this app that is built into my phone that monitors my screen time. And it has proven to me just how many times I pick up my phone. How many times... How much time I waste on things that really don't matter. I I could even make the excuse that, oh, I was reading my Bible on my phone. But it shows how much time I use on the Bible app, and it's very, very small compared to how much I use the rest of it. I wish, again, that I could say that this was measured, this time wasting was measured in seconds or even minutes, but it's measured in hours a day. And that number is just, it's astounding. The problem is that I've let my guard down. Under the excuse of, I just need to unwind. I'm tired. Uh, I'm Whatever other excuse it has, I've allowed myself to be consumed by the things of this world instead of the things of God. It takes me back a uh, hundred years ago when men and women had to farm the land, to provide the food. To, they had to work constantly in order to prepare themselves. They, didn't, they couldn't just go to the grocery store. They couldn't just go to the, the restaurant. They had to prepare all of that ourselves. We had a uh, roast last night. Uh, Rachel put it in yesterday morning and, and uh, it cooked all day. And man, it brought back a lot of memories. But it took a lot of work. Your stomach better not start growling. but we're constantly seeking faster ways of doing things not so that we can get more done but so we have more time to waste 
Verse 19 opens with when the, the virgins were gathered together the second time. Apparently the king had such a good time in searching for a new queen that he wanted to do it again. This time, though, it's purely for pleasure. He's not, he's not looking for a queen. He's already found her. He's happy with Esther. This is purely for his own pleasure, for his own enjoy, his enjoyment. His lust was not satisfied. May I say that satisfaction has nothing to do with the object, but everything to do with our perspective. In talking with my grandmother about the nursing home, she's already made up her mind, uh, or she had up until a couple of days ago, made up her mind that she was going to hate it. That, that, that She'd been there for an hour. She'd visited for an hour about two years ago, and she there was nobody she was going to be able to talk to. There were all these things that were negative about it without ever even experiencing what happens. She had a wrong perspective. She can make a choice. We've been talking about choices a lot lately to see the good in things. But she was refusing to do that. Now, hopefully, she sounds like she's made up her mind that she's going to go and uh, she'll hopefully get this new perspective and actually become come to enjoyment but or to enjoy it but all of this is because we're simply not content but contentment is a choice go with me to Luke 3 Luke chapter 3 I've, I've got several verses listed here and I don't know that I'll go through all of them but you'll get the idea Luke chapter 3 and verse number 10 the Bible says, And the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answereth, and saith unto them, He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him to do likewise. Then came also publicans to be baptized, and said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact no more than that which is appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, And what shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, Neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. And as the people were in expectation, and all men mused in their hearts of John, whether he were the Christ or not. John the Baptist is telling the soldiers to be content. He's telling uh, them to be happy with what they've been given. Philippians 4. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica I sent once, once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound, 
I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to the riches of his glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, writing to the Philippians, tells them that he knows how to be abased and he knows how to abound. He knows how to be full and how to be hungry. He knows how to be content. It's a state of mind. He was content when he was treading water after his shipwreck. He was content when he was stoned multiple times almost to death because he knew that he was serving the living God. All of these verses speak of God's desire for us to be content with what he has given us. Understanding that this contentment is for our physical needs, our physical things, not our spiritual. We are always to seek God to grow closer to God and never to be content with, our, with the way our relationship is with him. That's the spiritual side. We're always to be able to be seeking God's face spiritually. But physically, we are to be content with what God has, where he has us, because he has us here for a reason. God has, is, and will continue to supply exactly what we need when we need it. Notice that I said need. He does show us grace and gives us our desires that align with his plan and purpose for us, but without fail... He always gives us what we need. We so, we so often fail when we are not content with where we are. The grass is always greener on the other side of the fence is the saying. When the horses were here, uh, they would run their necks through the fence at risking getting caught, hurting themselves because they wanted the grass over here. Even though the grass on their side of the fence was about 100 times taller, they wanted the grass that was over here. If we aren't careful, we can look at the neighbor's new Mustang or his boat or his ATV or his wife and decide that what we have isn't good enough and that we deserve better. In this physical realm, we are to be content with where God has us serving to the best of our ability, allowing him to to exalt us if he sees fit. Again, on the spiritual side, though, we are to strive to grow closer to God with every breath. This is where the rest of verse 19 comes into play. Mordecai, like Lot, had grown content with where he was spiritually and discontent with where he was physically. This is why at the end of verse 19 we find him in the king's gate. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. The gate of the city is where all the business is done. The gate of the palace is how you get to the king. Mordecai was now seeking not only to have Esther in the palace, but also to be there himself. We know in later verses that part of the reason for him being there is so that he could know how Esther was doing. So that he could have contact with her and understand as a loving father figure how his daughter is doing. But he could have done that not being in the gate of the the palace. In verse number 20, we are again reminded that Esther had not shown her nationality. Again, this was commanded by Mordecai. 
He was hiding the fact that they were God's people. As we continue on, in verse number 21, it says, In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, it gives us a time frame. We, we have no idea how long Esther has been queen at this point. We just know that this time Mordecai has spent in the gate, that he is, he's been there a while. And we begin to see some things that most of the world would call coincidence. They would say that Mordecai was in the right place at the right time to know and understand what was going on. I would question that. Sometime after Esther's coronation, Mordecai overhears two men plotting to kill the king. Bigthan and Tirsha, Tirish were chamberlains who kept the door. They were the ones that granted or denied access to the king. Now, was Mordecai simply in just the right place at just the right time to overhear these two men plotting? I doubt it. If you are a servant of the king and you're plotting to kill the king, you're very secretive about who's around when you're plotting that. I mean, if you look on, when Haman was plotting to kill Mordecai, he didn't just go out in the middle of the town square and say, I'm going to kill Mordecai. No. He plotted with his wife. He plotted with his friends. A very close group of people. He hid it from everybody. Possibly, but not likely, these men knew that Mordecai was there and they thought so little of him that they didn't care whether he overheard it or not. I mean... He is a Jew, after all. He is basically a slave. He's not somebody that would be seen as a problem. But it is possible, and much more likely, that Mordecai had endeared himself to them over many days and possibly months, and that these men thought that he believed the way that they did. That he had grown friendly with them, and they felt confident that his views were the same as their own, very possibly uh, that he would help them. It's also very possible that they were so blinded by their anger that they couldn't control themselves. Either of those last two possibilities is probably the best answer. And then we get to wrath. These men were were angry. We, the Bible doesn't tell us what the king did to make them angry. Uh, he doesn't tell us anything. It just tells us that they were wroth with the king. We are only told, given the word wroth. But when you look, at, look that word up, it goes all the way back to Genesis. The word wroth is more than a little frustrated. It's excessively angry. In Genesis, the Bible tells us that Cain was wroth and his countenance fell as he was, his sacrifice was rejected. His wrath transferred into him killing his brother Abel because Abel's sacrifice was accepted. This kind of anger only leads to destruction. And I think it's important that we are not told what caused the anger because that's not important. It doesn't matter. The important thing is not the cause, but the effect. The thing that we need to remember is this. Keep your anger under control. Anger, just like all emotions, are governed by choice. These are not involuntary reactions. 
When you go to the doctor and the doctor hits your knee with that little hammer and your, your foot moves, or it's supposed to move, sometimes it doesn't, that's an involuntary reaction. He's hit a nerve that makes that move. You can't control whether it moves or not. When you hit your funny bone and your hand goes numb and lights on fire, that's an involuntary reaction. Our emotions are not that way. Love, hate, anger, happiness, sadness, joy, lust, all of it are governed by our choice. This is why Joseph could succeed in the pit and in Potiphar's house and in prison just like he did in the palace. Because he chose to see God and God was with him. Now, I know there are there's at least one, but I think there's probably more than one that's... No, there's not. I'm not even going to say that. There might be some experience with spending some time in jail in this room. This isn't jail like what was in the Bible. When you look at the book of Jeremiah, they threw Jeremiah into a pit where he was mired down in the mud and fed with bread and water only to starve to death. That was prison. Joseph was thrown into a dark prison where he actually was forced to take care of the other prisoners to tend to their needs. Peter was chained to four soldiers, one for each appendage. Day and night, Paul, Chained day and night. It wasn't, oh, we get to go spend time in the yard and we get to watch cable TV and we get to further our education. Prison was a place you didn't want to be. It was a death sentence. Even though they weren't being executed, it was still a death sentence. Yet Joseph chose to see God and to thrive in that environment. It's all a choice. This is a horrible analogy, but it's getting to be that time of year. And I, we talked about Polar Express a little bit already this morning. But, but I, I think back to Home Alone, the first Home Alone, when Kevin was left home and he had to go to the basement and do laundry. But he was so afraid of the basement because the furnace talked to him and was this evil, wicked thing. But he forced himself to face that fear. And he says, I'm not afraid anymore. I'm not afraid anymore. We've talked about this before with Brother Grant and his military experience and me with my fire department experience. There's a reason that we do live fire training. That, that it's They used live ammunition in Brother Grant's training, shooting in directions where they were to get that fear out of them. We went into places that we purposely lit on fire to put it out, to get that fear out of us. <clears throat> These were all, all of this is designed for people to face their fears, to make the choice to live in spite of them or to lose them altogether. But it was all governed by choice. That's why it's vital for us to act as prescribed in James 1.19. Hebrews, then James. 
James chapter 1 and verse number 19. says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. This recipe allows us to make the choice to react in a godly way rather than in a worldly way. Big Thin and Tirish allowed their wrath to overtake them and they began to plot to kill the king. But even though the world might see Mordecai being there as a coincidence, we understand that there are no coincidences. When it's all said and done, God guides and directs every bit of what happens. Even though Mordecai and Esther were making bad decisions and the king Ahasuerus was not a godly king, God knew what was coming and what role all of these people would play. He allowed them to be in their positions so that Israel could be saved. Not for these people individually, but for the nation as a whole to continue a promise that he had made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Even in the midst of their punishment, his grace and mercy is evident. Remember, Israel was in captivity because of their idolatry, because they had walked away from serving God. This was a punishment. Yet God still loved them and cared for them in order to keep them alive. Go back to Genesis and we see Adam and Eve as they've sinned in the garden and God is meeting out the punishment and he tells the woman what's going to happen. He tells the man what's going to happen. He tells the serpent what's going to happen. And then he takes Adam and Eve and he pulls them out of the garden, out of their home. And he sets cherubims and a flaming sword at the gate. All of this was done, yes, as a punishment. But it was also done to remove them from the tree of life so they wouldn't have to spend all of eternity in that sin. It was done to provide a way for them to get back to God. Even in the midst, sorry, the plot was made known and punishment was immediate. Mordecai's name is recorded in the Chronicles of the Kingdom and life goes on. Now this might seem like an insignificant event, but even these seemingly insignificant events events will make other more significant events possible. I think about uh, Germany before World War II. Germany was in an economic crisis. They were struggling much like the United States is today. Until a young man came along and promised to, that the government would provide everything that the German people needed. He made a bunch of promises. He spoke well. And the people elected him. After they elected him, a few years later, he began rounding up all the Jews and execu- executing them and waging war all across Europe. Hitler didn't take power by force. He was given power by the people. 
a choice was made. Even those that saw Hitler taking a turn as a young man in his very early days of ruling chose to do nothing. They chose to let him continue. World War II was horrendous. Hundreds of thousands killed for absolutely no reason. Much like what's going on in Israel today with their fight with Hamas. It's spilling over into the streets. Innocent men, women, and children who are not soldiers are suffering the most consequences. So let me ask you, what choice are we making today? Esther, Mordecai, Big Than, Tirish, they all made choices. Seemingly insignificant choices. But they're going to drastically affect the future. If the choices you're making today are choices that are being made without God, you're putting yourself at risk. And when I say you, I mean me too. I'm not immune to this. Joseph made the choice in the pit and in Potiphar's house and in prison and in the palace to seek God, to follow God. And he was blessed for it. God was with him. And those that put him in those places were saved because of it. Esther and Mordecai have made all these choices without God. Now God, in spite of that, is going to save Israel. But at what cost? Gideon made choices to follow his lust. Abimelech made choices to follow his lust and his pride and his false gods. And he killed his brothers. All of these things seem like they're nothing at the time. But they have dire consequences. So I'll ask again, what choice are we making today? Are we choosing to serve God and God alone? Or are we choosing to leave God out and seek everything of the world?